You're listening to Differentiated with Ben Silverman, where investment research analysts dive into insider data and demystify the signals that drive one-of-a-kind investment ideas. Welcome to Differentiated. I'm your host, Ben Silverman. We started this podcast to dive into the intricacies of the various data sets that myself and my fellow analysts have been investigating for the past 20 years. Those data sets include insider transactions, stock buybacks, management compensation, and institutional flows. The reason we look at these different data sets is to gain investing edge. And the reason we're looking for investing edge is to use that in our process, be it for idea generation or for portfolio risk management. To this end, everything we do is geared towards generating ideas or looking for red flags so that we understand what investments of ours could be at risk. In this episode, I'm joined by Max McGee and Ali Raja, Veridata's two most senior analysts. We're going to dive into some ideas from the recent past that have come to realization and some new ideas that have excited us. These ideas represent just a subset of some of the 2,500 pieces of research we put out per year. These are some of our favorites. To kick things off, I'm joined by Max McGee. Max has been an analyst at Verity for 17 years. Max's specialty, among other things, is in insider transactions. He's also spearheading our generative AI efforts. Max, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ben. Max, when you started looking back at some of the ideas uh, from the past year or so, what stood out to you? Well, a concept that I thought would be very interesting to talk about today was our cessation of selling concept, because it's really been a stock picker's market, and a lot of stocks have been up and down, and that sort of is an especially fruitful market environment for this concept. Cessation of selling is a concept that we worked up several years ago. And the idea was that we had been seeing, especially among the larger and mega cap stocks, that, you know, insider buying had really become restrained over the years, largely as a result of stock-based compensation policies removing any incentive for insiders to buy. This is particularly true after the great financial crisis when so much equity was given out at such low prices that insiders were just loaded up with cheap equity for years. So what Max and some other analysts here worked up was this concept that looks at what happens when insiders stop selling at a company where insider selling is the norm. Right. That's basically lays out the concept nicely. And, and to get a little more granular on it, what we're looking for is a clear culture of selling. So the idea that we could look at a company and see that insiders have sold quarter after quarter for a number of quarters extending into a period of years, and then they stop selling. And we're able to algorithmically identify that. And the work we did there did indicate that that can be a very interesting signal for, uh, for considering a stock. And there's sort of two ideas there, right? Cessation of selling could potentially mean one of two things. And what are those two things? The first of the, those two things that a cessation is likely to signal, in our view, is a valuation signal. So the idea here is insiders have been getting shares on a regular basis as part of their compensation. And then it's sort of up to them on when to turn those shares once they've vested into cash. And that presents an incentive for them to seek out high prices. And it also presents an incentive to them to not sell 
at prices they don't feel are attractive. And, and let me be clear, we expect insiders to sell. We expect insiders at a lot of different companies to sell based on the levels of stock-based compensation, the sort of corporate culture there. For example, you will definitely see more insiders selling at tech and healthcare companies than you will at, you know, old line companies or uh, materials companies, for example. But, you know, I think it's important that investors understand that there should be an expectation at many companies, especially growth-oriented companies, that insiders are going to sell. Exactly. A specific name that I wanted to highlight that illustrates this from the past year or so is the pharmaceutical company Zoetis. They focus on animal health. And so this is a company where there was selling by insiders in every quarter going back to Q1 of 2018. And then in Q4 2022, as the stock dropped to its lowest level since really since the early COVID recovery, insiders paused selling again for the first time in roughly four years. That really stood out to us, the insiders moving en masse onto the sidelines. You know, to get into prices, that pause happened with shares trading around $148 a share. And indeed, that did end up marking a near-term low for the stock, with the stock now trading at nearly $183 a share. And indeed, insiders, as the stock moved back above roughly $175, did begin selling again. So we can see pretty clearly that the behavior there was valuation motivated. And that decision to stop selling really did mark out a very interesting point to look at the stock as a potential long idea. I think one of the things that's important to also understand there is because there had been an established culture of selling there, when insiders started selling again, which didn't happen until the stock went from, like you said, we got that signal at around $147. They didn't start selling again until the stock was at $175. And in fact, it was an executive who had a 10B51 plan in place and had used that price as a minimum. And just because they start selling again, that's not necessarily a negative because the baseline culture here all the way through the course of the stock, and if I look back at the chart, and look at when they started selling, which was uh, in Q1 of 18, the stock was around $80. And during the period from then through Q3 of 22, as they kept selling, the stock went up over $200 at one point. And the highest sale volume was actually at prices under $100 and under $150. So just because they started selling again, that's not necessarily a negative. It just means they've returned to their baseline behavior. Exactly. So it's not the only thing that cessation can tell us. Another way of looking at these cessations is that sometimes insiders are strictly prohibited from selling when they would otherwise be able to. When that happens, it's because insiders have come into possession of material non-public information, which, as investors will know, could indicate that there is a potential material event like M&A in the works. So what that means basically is that it could be a little bit of a tip-off or a little bit of a clue if insiders stop selling unexpectedly that there is a material news event coming in the next few quarters. Do you have an example of that? We did have one recently that we had looked at. And so this is a smaller cap company. Ticker is NXGN. The company is NextGen Healthcare. 
and this is a healthcare software firm. And we had identified a cessation of selling at the end of March of this year, 2023. And this was the first quarter in which insiders had not sold since Q3 of 2020. So they had gone over two years selling every single quarter, and then they abruptly stopped. And, and we did highlight that behavior. And insiders did not resume selling after we issued research on that. And just recently in August, there started to be some news reports that the company might be in play. And in fact, early September 2023, it was announced that PE firm Toma Bravo would take the company private for $23.95 a share. So that's at a nice premium to where we identified the unusual lack of selling, which was down closer to $17 a share. Yeah, and I think one of the really interesting things there was that the selling dried up and it wasn't on like extreme weakness. The stock had only dropped about 10, 12% from when insiders had last been selling. And the stock wasn't even 20% below its its multi-year high at that point. So it was it was a more subtle thing. You know, we certainly see examples where uh, stocks plummet and the selling dries up, and, and that's not to be unexpected quite often. But here it was, you know, again, the stock had not sold off like dramatically from the levels where insiders had been selling for, you know, multiple quarters. Right. And I would just add that if, as an investor, you have an inkling that a stock may be in play or, or or that there may be some material event coming, the cessation of selling can be a little bit of confirmation uh, towards that thesis. Yeah, and I think it's definitely, um, you know, this idea of looking for a lack of selling is not something commonly employed, you know, by investors. And in fact, it's not even something we see in sell-side research ever. You know, and, and that's what I find interesting because, you know, in sell-side research, uh, you know, the analysts are covering the stock. They they know the stock, you know, they should know the stock as well as anybody. And, um, you know, we very rarely see insider activity mentioned, and it's, it's I've yet to see uh, sell-side research mentioning uh, a lack of insider selling as being a positive input. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's very easy to key in on something that's happening. It's a lot harder to identify something that's not happening. And that's why we went ahead and built a whole rule set around this. And in fact, it's really something that is only possible with the kind of database that we've built where we have the clean data that allows for it and and we can really track this stuff and make use of it. Before I let you go, any other recent cessations that you think uh, people should be aware of right now? Sure. Just looking at some of the recent cessations that we've issued research on, one that stands out as, as potentially pretty interesting, and this would be from the valuation point of view, is General Mills, ticker GIS. Obviously, this wouldn't necessarily be as likely to be a material non-public information situation as this is a $40 billion company, but the stock has fallen by about a third in the last quarter, and sellers who had been around consistently since early 2020, moved quickly to the sidelines. So that's one uh, worth taking a look at. And, you know, just as a reminder, we are issuing research on these as they come in and as we identify these interesting situations. So there's, there's new ones coming all the time. 
turning now to Ali Raja. Ali's been with Verity for over 10 years and one of Ali's specialties where he's really extracted a lot of value for our clients has been analyzing buyback activity. Welcome to Differentiated, Ali. Thanks, Ben. So, Ali, one of the things I thought was interesting is when we started talking offline a little bit about your ideas, you actually didn't start with a specific company. You started framing your idea to me around the macro buyback environment. So maybe you could uh, explain that for our listeners. Yeah. So, I mean, companies are buying back stock for various reasons, as I've said in the past. And, you know, in the prior quarter, Q2 of 2023, buyback dollar value shrunk quite a bit. And there's various reasons to that, whether it was economic conditions in certain industries and sectors, and then also capital requirements for banks, that was a big factor as far as the decrease, and then also valuations as well. So, uh, you know, example is just companies not wanting to buy back as much stock because they don't think their stock is as undervalued as it used to be. And so I think it kind of is a good segue into one of the first companies I want to talk about, which is uh, Verona's, a cybersecurity vendor. And so this is a situation where they instituted their first buyback program in 2022, and their stock was coming down for the past year. And they were really active in Q4 of 2022. No, what's interesting about this is they eased up the pace quite a bit as their stock recovered. And it kind of speaks to the macro environment as well, where you have a decrease in volume alongside a recovery in the equity valuations. And, you know, what I thought was interesting here, among other things, was, you know, if I looking at the long-term chart here, this was a stock that certainly got a big boost during the pandemic, largely during like 2019, it had been trading in the 20 to $25 range. And then during the back half of 2020, really caught fire. And, you know, by early 2021, it was like peaking at $70, but it peaked there again later in the year. So then it spends most of uh, 21 and 22 coming down from those peaks. And that's when they did the buyback. So what was interesting to me was that they use that cash that they had generated, you know, during the pandemic and started putting it to work, you know, after the stock had revalued significantly lower. Yeah, and what really caught our eye about this one, you know, in our written research was the fact that this came alongside a decrease in, in insider selling. So that's the station concept that Max talked about earlier. But beyond that as well, you know, this is their first buyback program, came with a decrease in selling. We didn't know if they're actually going to use it. But then you have the situation where multiple executives deviated behavior and, and started buying the stock themselves. So it was a really interesting situation where executives really showed their hand and, and were buying their stock. And then as the disclosures came and rolled in, it showed they were really active as well and, and bought back about 2.5% of their outstanding in Q4 of last year. And, and then after that, the next two quarters were quite small as the stock recovered. Yeah, you sort of had this triple whammy there, right? You had the insider buying, the lack of selling, and the buyback all sort of confirming, you know, around, uh, you know, the same valuation, which was significantly lower than that 70 peak. You know, but we look at the buyback, this big buyback from Q4 of 22, it was at about $19.50. You know, the insider buying was at about $17.50. So the insiders actually got a little better price than the shareholders there. But that's going to happen because the insiders are just buying generally once. And whereas the company has to, it is buying back over the course, uh, you know, of the entire quarter as well. And, the, you know, the other thing I looked at here was, you know, the management changes. 
you know, that's another data set of ours. And, you know, we look at it closely. And they've had a very stable management team there in that you have very long-term CEO uh, and CFO has been there for like six years. CEO's been, I think he might be a founder, you know, uh, 20 years at this point. And there hasn't been any type of really material change in management there in, in over five years at this point. You know, when you see that type of stability, Ali, and you see that capital allocation with the buyback, what does that tell you? Yeah, I mean, it's helpful and it, and it kind of helps understand, you know, to match up a company's buyback history to the management team, like who's making the decisions right now and who's making the decision three years ago and, and seven years ago and that sort of thing. And you know, another company that I wanted to talk about as well is um, Raymond James. And this is, as I mentioned, Verona sells your first buyback, but Raymond James, this is a company that has a deep history of being opportunistic with their buyback program. And so that's a really nice thing to see when you're, you're tracking a company, you're looking for the, for the valuation signals from the buyback program, um, seeing that deep history there. And so here we saw in Q1 of this year, 2023, and their stock sold off, while a lot of others in the financial sector also pulled back in the collapse of uh, SBB and so on. But, you know, management here was when they wanted to take a really aggressive approach and, and accelerate their buyback program. They were buying back, just nibbling at the stock in the prior quarters, but they accelerated and bought back, you know, almost 2% in, in Q1 of this year. And, and more recently in Q2 of this year as well, so just last quarter, they were similarly aggressive and, and bought back another 1.5% in just that one quarter. So, you know, good to see after a history like that. And, and this stock has recovered since their buyback prices, which were largely below, um, you know, 93 and near $90 basically for those two quarters. Yeah, and and what I what I liked about looking at it, uh, RJF Raymond James was, as you mentioned, they were aggressive buyers during the pandemic weakness. That's good. They were also doing an aggressive buyback way back in Q one sixteen, and Q one sixteen is when bank stocks got absolutely destroyed. And what was interesting there was that's always look. That's when Jamie Dimon of J P Morgan made a very large insider purchase, which was odd for him. He doesn't buy stock generally. He doesn't sell stock either. But financials were just getting destroyed that quarter. And in looking at RJF's buyback chart for stretching back now 20 years, at that point, that was the most aggressive they'd ever been. The most aggressive they'd been prior to Q116 had been back in 2008 during the great financial crisis. So it certainly seems that management there, and the, and the CEO's been there a long time. CFO was promoted from within, which is good. So there's, there certainly seems to be a culture there of using this macro weakness as an opportunity to buy back stock, which speaks to their confidence in the underlying business, you know, in these situations. Yeah. And then with Raymond James, the CFO role right there, being promoted from within is really helpful to see who's who's deep in that culture, for instance. You know, and conversely, another company looking at more recently, Synaptics, ticker Cina. Here we had the CEO and CFO brought in in 2019, and uh, they were pretty active and they were in the market opportunistically in, in Q1 of 2020 as well, into a pullback at the time, you know, COVID pullback. And they didn't buy back stock for in the next two years at all. Their stock performed really well in the next two-year period. But uh, come 2022, in the back half of the year, they returned to the market for the first time in about two and a half years now. So it's an interesting one to see. And, and they've been really active um, right around $110 and below. But you know they've been actually more active below $90. So they're, they've been really opportunistic this year and fluctuating the pace, which is nice to see. So you, know, you have a management team right there who 
had a history of being opportunistic at times. And, and so the way they've fluctuated the pace in the past year has been um, really nice to see. So for them, they've been at the market an average price of $92. But since Q3 of last year, when they returned buybacks, I mean, their stock has had an average close of uh, something like um, $106. So they're capturing a pretty good discount to where the stock's been trading lately. And one of the things that's interesting there when I'm looking at the chart here is, as you said, if I start, if I go back to Q3 of last year, they they started buying back stock, but they started buying back stock, I think, near the uh, sort of middle to the end of the quarter as the stock uh, was coming down. It was, you know, in weakness, probably from an earnings report. Then they bumped up in Q4. The stock went higher in Q1. They took their foot off the gas. Q2 this year, they bumped up again. It sort of, to me, it makes me think of this idea that is definitely talked about in the media a lot, that stock buybacks prop up stocks. But this chart is showing me the opposite because what it's showing me is that they're not contributing to the periods when the stock is doing well. And instead, when the stock is coming down, they're being advantageous. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it, Ben. Um, you know, and, and just kind of thinking about the, the valuation signaling that you're getting from this company right here and, and where they like their, their stock and where they like the valuation. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ali. Some great ideas there. Thank you, Ben. So what I found interesting about the ideas that Max and Ali presented was, while they seem different on the surface, there are actually a lot of similarities. And the biggest similarity is we're looking at the actions of management teams, whether it be executing a buyback or whether it be a decision to take their own money and buy stock or to stop generating liquidity from their stock-based comp. It's all human decisions made by management teams, and it's all valuation-oriented. And that's what ties these things together. And it's something you can't find in the fundamental data, but it is something that you can find by looking at these data sets, and it's what helps generate differentiated ideas. This episode of Differentiated with Ben Silverman was brought to you by Verity. Verity designs software that helps over 360 asset managers discover one-of-a-kind insights, streamline research workflows, and manage fund research productively. To learn more or begin a free trial, visit verityplatform.com. This episode of Differentiated with Ben Silverman was edited, mixed, and scored by Calvin Marty.